Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. Now this morning we continue our series in Genesis and in particular we're looking at the life of our patriarch, Jacob, later known as Israel. Last week we saw how Jacob was found himself, found himself committed to working 14 years to his father-in-law as a dowry for his two wives. After he had been duped by his uncle, he continued to work. Now, during this time, Jacob found himself working as barely more... He started in the house, I suppose, as, as, as a guest for the first month. Everything was pretty good. Everything was hunky-dory. And, and then they started drawing up contracts as to what was going to be. So, we saw how he was reduced from being part of the household to being something, I suppose, just a little bit like a servant or even just a little bit above a slave. Now, Laban was the master deceiver, as Calvin would say, a sly sly old fox. He previously mentioned that, uh, we, we previously mentioned that in Laban, Jacob had well and truly met his match. Laban, I suppose, is the original Alan Bond, Christopher Scase, that type of character, the deal maker. Do as much as you can and use other people to get it done and, and, and find a way to make it happen as long as you are the beneficiary. The, the, the beneficiary of, of, of all this uh, scheming and, and all of that. There are some people who are very good at scheming. Not everything is above board, obviously. Not everything is ethical. And certainly, it doesn't, it leaves a very bad aftertaste, especially to those who are caught on the other end of these bad deals. Now, even though Jacob was a, a deal maker himself, Here, he was helpless against such a man. And even as the longing for home, because he was in the land of Haran, which wasn't his home, he wanted to go back home to the promised land where he was born. But even then, as the longing of his heart grows, he struggles to get away from the schemes of his father-in-law. The only hope that he had was in the sovereign God who, despite everything, continues to bless this less than perfect patriarch. So let's look a little bit more about the longing for home from verses 25 to 26. Now after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. So it was time to go home. Not only because of the bad experiences with the father-in-law, not only because he wanted to be close to his 
elderly parents before they died. There were some things that he needed to straighten out with his estranged brother Esau. There's a quite a few loose ends in the land of promise after he had to quickly depart fearing for his life. Most of these issues, most of the reasons he had to leave obviously were because of his own folly but now he had to confront them. So after the, the birth of, of Joseph, Jacob recognised that it was time to leave town. Now you've got to hand it to, to Jacob. He wasn't a quitter. He worked hard and he kept going. I think most of us would have left town in a huff and uh, not hung out for all of those years. Yet he persevered and uh, despite the fact that he'll be pushing 90 by now, he kept going. He kept going. I've got to give him credit for that. So Jacob called up all his courage and approached his father-in-law Laban, asking to be released from his authority, from his, he's done his bit. You have to recognise the answer. Well, why did he have to go to his father-in-law if he's already married, if he had you know, done everything that he had to do? Isn't he just, just go, just go. You see, in some places today, still today, the authority structure is still very similar to this one where the extended family was, is far more complex and restrictive than what we're used to in a Western society like Australia. There was shared ownership, even of Jacob's wives and children. They were still under the authority of the godfather, Laban. To leave without his father-in-law's permission and blessing was dangerous. We'll look at that in the next chapter, of course. Today, like Jacob, I wonder if you also find yourself in a difficult work environment. Have you ever considered praying that the Lord will give you greater patience to endure the circumstances that you have to go through? We find ourselves sometimes in a difficult work environment where you try but nobody hears you, you can't change your boss, you can't change your co-workers. You considered leaving you've got commitments, you've got this, you've got that, you like your job. It's just the people around you that you find hard to get along with. Why not pray that the Lord change you? What are you saying, Paul? What I'm saying is the problem might actually be you. What? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm perfect. What are you talking about? 
because this principle can also be applicable not just to the workplace, but to marriage as well. Only God can change your spouse. You're not going to change them. Only God can. So why not let him do his work in your loved one? Instead of worrying about your spouse, how about worrying about yourself and your situation? So if your work environment, marriage, relationship or even is extended to the church is not what you want or expect, that's not necessarily a horrible thing. Maybe God may be refining you through the process, teaching you perseverance, growing you in your dependence upon him, getting you accustomed that you can't always have your way. And isn't that what life is about? May the Lord grant us the grace to look to him as he's teaching us through the difficulties in our lives. Verse 27, being a blessing. Laban said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. It's quite obvious here that uh, Uncle Laban is kissing up to Jacob, virtually pleading him to stay. Laban claims that he has learned by divination that the Lord has blessed him because of Jacob. The means were obviously questionable by which he found out that God was blessing him, but the truth is still correct. Crafty Laban could see that he had this really good thing going with a son-in-law. So therefore he didn't want Jacob to leave. It's not because he loved his son-in-law. It's not because he loved his daughters, Rachel and Leah. And it's not because he loved his 11 grandchildren by now. It's because he loved his prosperity. And it's all because of Jacob's presence there. Now Jacob, for all his moral weakness, is a man with faith in God. Despite all his weaknesses, we've been through that. He has faith in God. And God blesses the old fox, Laban, because, why? Because he has a good man working for him. Now, this concept occurs several times in the Bible. We see this concept This principle, it's a biblical principle. We see it working when God promises to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if only ten righteous people are in the city. 
If ten righteous people were found in Sodom and Gomorrah, God was going to spare the city. We find this principle at operation later on. When God prospers Potiphar's household because of Joseph, Genesis chapter 39. We see God prospering the land of Egypt, Pharaoh's household, the whole of the land of Egypt, for the mere fact that Joseph is there. There's a few other instances in the Bible, but let's just jump straight away to the New Testament and say, well, Paul, that's okay in the Old Testament. How about the New? Well, in the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, he writes about marriages, more specifically marriages where one partner is a believer, the other one isn't. It's not that they were married, you know, one a believer, the other an unbeliever. One was converted after they were married and the other one remained an unbeliever. It makes it difficult, it makes it hard when they are unequally yoked. In such a case, Apostle Paul is saying that the unbelieving partner and any children are sanctified through the believing partner. This means that the unbeliever is blessed on account of the believer. What? Yes, that's what the Bible is saying. So the, the, the fact that there is a believer in a difficult situation in a marriage, not ideal by any means, And yet, for the mere fact that that person is there, that person is a blessing to the rest of the family, to the marriage. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, sanctified. Wow. Now, you might not have thought about this, a lot, but God blesses the people of the world because his people are nearby. If you are a believer, your marriage is different and better because you are there. Your workplace is different and better because you are there. Your school is different and better because you are there. What if God wants to bless his children so much that he will even bless the deceitful, scheming people in the workplace and everywhere else just for the mere fact that you are there and they will be blessed because of you being there. Have you ever thought about that? That you are the salt, that you are the light, that God has put you in a situation of darkness even so that you can shine the light there and that you by shining the light you will be a blessing in that difficult environment. And yes, that they will be blessed, that the boss will 
increase his profits and everything else because he's using you. And you feel that you are used, but God says, no, don't look at it that way. You are actually serving me rather than working for a mere man. You are actually working for me here. You are honouring me. You turn this situation around. You turn it into a blessing rather than a curse. Our God is a gracious God and why... I mean that he's not just gracious towards his children. Our gracious God is gracious to those who are influenced and touched by his children as well. So let's ask a sobering question. Is your world a better place because you're in it? Is it better? I hope it is. If it isn't, I hope that you pray about this and turn it into a better place because God has placed you there. Now, in verses 28 to 34, there is an offer you can't refuse. In verse 28, he says, he added, name your wages and I will pay them. Name your wages and I will pay them. In the beginning, it seemed that Jacob wanted nothing from Laban. He just wanted out. But as the saying goes, every man has his prize. And like the godfather, Laban makes Jacob an offer he can't refuse. And he says, name your wages and I will pay them. Seems attractive, doesn't it? Tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. It's interesting that Jacob brought up the whole issue of uh, having to leave. It's not as if the father-in-law reminded him, it's time for you to go. It would have been happy for him to stay. in, In the work situation, sometimes I know, I go back to the workplace, that somebody works pretty hard for 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 the boss and the issue of a pay raise is never raised by the boss unless it is raised by the employee. Isn't it? That's the general principle. And it's not until the employee comes to the boss and says, I've found another job, that the boss will say, how much are they willing to offer you? I will match it. Well, hang on. If you like me that much, why didn't you just give me a better wage before? You see what I'm saying here? If you appreciated my work, just pay me what I'm worth. So Laban uses the same principle here that says, well, uh, name your wages. I'll match them, I'll pay them. What is it that you want? And this is a very attractive offer. Jacob is now a free man. No contract, nothing. He's a free agent. All right? He can go to any team he wants. The 14 years of servitude have come to an end. But the offer is so good that Jacob is now voluntarily voluntarily enslaving himself yet again. So when Laban says, name your wages, it is irresistible. And the same thing has been irresistible to many Christians ever since. Name your price. Name your price. Name 
Name your price. What is it that you're willing to compromise? And we will do it. Jacob could name his price for staying. It could have been camels. It could have been land. It could have been uh, a full partnership. He already had the daughters. Temptation. That's what it looks like. He should have responded. He should have responded like Grandpa Abe. Remember Abraham before the kings of, of Sodom when after his victory against all these kings with just his glorious 318, you know, he, as he came back victoriously from victory, the king of Sodom sort of comes out and offers him pretty much everything that the city had and says, take it, it's yours, you deserve it. And yet Abraham refused even a sandal because he wanted no pagan in the land of Canaan to claim that they had made Abraham rich. That privilege only belongs to God. He should have responded like that. Will Jacob take a stand after all these years and say, I don't need anything from you. I have the Lord and he will bless and protect me. The land he has promised is not here. The land he has promised is back there. He will supply all my needs. I am simply asking you kindly, respectfully, as the father of my wives, as the granddad of my grandchildren, please let me part from you in peace. That's not how he responded. seems clear that Jacob spent time going over the possible responses and counter-responses. We don't know how long he agonised over this, but he gave his response. So Jacob suggests the following, I'll keep your flocks again for a while, but now let me keep the speckled and black sheep and the speckled and spotted goats too. In this part of the world, the majority of the sheep were white and the majority of the goats were solid black. That's the way it is, just a boring, solid colour. So why did he ask for speckled and spotted? These are the days before spray paints and all of that, tattoos. It was simply a a foolproof way to distinguish between the flocks of Laban and Jacob. Jacob was at a severe disadvantage because there were more the plain coloured rather than the spotted ones. Great deal for Laban, terrible deal for Jacob and yet it was Jacob who made the call. Why? Well, in the next chapter... He's saying that God actually told Jacob to go for the spotted ones. He's placing Jacob at a severe disadvantage. Laban, as far as Laban was concerned, he couldn't lose. And so Laban agrees straight away, verse 34, let it be as you said. You can just imagine Laban, when he got out of Jacob's sight, He first began to smile, then chuckle and then break out into loud laughter thinking 
there's a sucker born every minute, isn't there? Well, let's see who has the last laugh. Let the, let the games begin, as they say, verses 35 to 42. That same day, this is Laban, he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them and all the dark-coloured lambs and he placed them in the care, not of Jacob, but of his sons. And then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. You recall the games between Isaac and Esau and Rebekah and Jacob, you know, sparring one in each corner. And the other games continue between Jacob and his uncle slash father-in-law slash boss slash godfather. The very day the deal was struck, he got his own sons to take out the spotted sheep and goats. Remember, these are the ones that are supposed to have been Jacob's. No, before Jacob could get his hands on them, the father-in-law was already removing them three days away. So what's left for Jacob? A few of a few, even less than what he thought. You've got less than you think. I thought I had little, but that's even less than that. Laban thinks he's pulling the wool over Jacob's eyes, so to speak. But God is not fooled and his love for Jacob will be on display. How is it that God sometimes... And remember, it was, it, was, it was God. The next chapter reveals to us that it was God who was deliberately placing Jacob at a disadvantage here. How is it that God does this with his sons and daughters? There is a similar principle in, in uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. After the, the false prophets have had their go and, and calling on the gods to come down and consume the animal on Mount Carmel there, nothing happened. And Elijah starts taunting them and and everything else. And nothing happened. And they were cutting themselves and bleeding themselves and pleading to their gods to come down and to rain fire and consume the bull. Nothing happened. And then Elijah... You know, rolls up his sleeves, says, what, nothing's happening, guys, at all? Let me show you how it's done. Puts the bull, puts the fire, and then he gets water. And he puts the water on the fire and he says, that's not enough water. We're going to need some more water here. So let's just put all the, you know how water and fire that mix, right? You know that. You try to start a fire with wet wood and you're going to be there for a while and tell you it's true it doesn't matter Elijah's not fast he just keeps pouring water on and says I'll show you what God can do you think that you're at a terrible disadvantage here I'm giving you first go 
Go for your life. Keep doing it. Keep pouring the water on it. You try and do what you want. But God will show up. God will do it. And bang, he did it. It was just zip, you know. What happened? Everything was consumed. Burned to a crisp. The man. That's God. Laban here thought that he could fool Jacob knew that he was already at disadvantage and now it's even less. And yet, God's power will be on display. Jacob, even, his faith is, is, is very fickle, isn't it? That he even tries to rely on some, what do you call it, uh, superstitious practice. Remember last week we spoke about the mandrakes that uh, Rachel wanted in order to get pregnant. It didn't work. It didn't work. It's a similar sort of principle here where he's, he's going through some superstitious practice, cultural idea that, you know, you peel the bark and all of this and you put it and then they'll mate and all of this. Somebody remarked that Jacob is actually the first genetic engineer in history. But the Bible is not teaching us some prenatal genetic influence that comes about by animals surrounded with, you know, animals are surrounded with speckled and spotted objects and suddenly they become speckled and spotted and I know that this is a lot of the stuff that is out there. It just shows that Jacob is a child of his, of his time. You know, he thought that these goats, these animals will be influenced by what they see. It will mark the embryo of the animal, I don't know. The same way that, you know, Rachel thought that by eating a baby-shaped mandrake would make her pregnant. It just doesn't work. But since when has superstition stopped Christians from trying to, <laughs> to, to use it? I mean, for 1,500 years. I mean, the, the Christianity has all these superstitious ideas and it's sort of mixed with superstition and Christianity and a lot of the local customs. You do this and you, you sacrifice that and, and God will bless this. And if you, if you go to the Jordan River and, and bring a little bit of water from the Jordan River and you pour that on your head, you will be blessed. It's just rubbish. Superstition. Suddenly you, you wear a cross on your neck and you're going to be blessed. Suddenly you put on Facebook, you say amen and all this money is going to come down to you. Come on guys, can we get over that please? It is God, God alone. Leave all the superstitions behind. There's an ethical question here, however. 
was it right for Jacob to meet his father-in-law's deception with sly deception of his own? To take advantage of the man because, you know, he was taken advantage of? Even more serious question is, is God blessing through fraud? Is, this, is that what is happening here? I like what Calvin said in this respect, and he wrote this, he's saying, and I quote, God is the author of no fraud. When he stretches out his hand to protect or defend his servant, nothing is more appropriate to him and more in accordance with his justice than that he should interpose as an avenger when any injury is inflicted. And he goes on, he says, He allowed Laban to keep what he unjustly possessed. But in six years, while Jacob kept his flocks, he withdrew his blessing from Laban and transferred it to his servant Jacob. And then he says, he says, If an earthly judge condemns a thief to restore twice or four times what has been stolen, no one complains then, then why should we concede any less to our God? Why should we? In verse 43, the last verse in our chapter, God continues to bless. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. That's from the NASB. God is Jacob's defender. God is defending Jacob against Laban by giving Jacob Laban's flocks. What Laban thought was a sure winner turned out to be a sure loser. In the next chapter, he goes back on the deal and tries to swap him over and God continues to bless Jacob. He swaps it again. God continues to... It doesn't matter which way you turn, mate. You're going to lose. You're going to lose if you're going to stand up against God. You've got no hope. Why did God choose to bless Jacob? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. Was it because of some moral uprightness? No. And no one can stop what God has promised. Jacob was the third in line, was the grandson of Abraham. He was part of the chosen. The line of the blessing will be through him. He's going to be blessed. When he falls, he'll be falling with his feet standing up. You know, it's just, that's the way it's going to happen. And if, if, if God can add and take away spots on the goats and the lamb, he can give to us and he can also take from us. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's his prerogative. It is his divine and perfect will. So Jacob's success was not due to his brilliance as a genetic engineer. He might have thought there was something to this custom of strict bark and all of that stuff, rubbish. 
There was nothing. It was simply due to the goodness of God in his life. As we finish, let's put all this in its context. Remember that Moses is telling this story to a people who have been released from Egypt and are travelling through the wilderness towards the promised land. These are the children, the descendants of Jacob, of Israel. Jacob went to Laban and said, let me go. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. But the people, as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, they hadn't gone all that far from Egypt before their eyes were turned back to Egypt. And they were forgetting their slavery. They were starting to think about how good life in Egypt as slaves was. Forget the pain. They were starting to to want the onions and the leeks and all of that. And so Moses is reminding Israel, your faith is just like Jacob's faith. They sort of wanted the promised land, but they also wanted peace and prosperity without the sacrifice and the perseverance of a long journey. Yes, they even wanted to go back. Yes, they looked to the God of Sinai, but they also looked to the golden calf. Just like your father Jacob looked to God, but also peeled the sticks at the watering holes. Despite all that, despite all those imperfections, despite our faltering, superstitious faith at times, God is blessing. He blessed Jacob and he blesses the children of Jacob centuries later and God is blessing us right now. How much easier would it be? How much simpler would it be? How much less pain we would have to endure that instead of just wandering around the desert year after year after year after year, we just simply trusted God and moved to the promised land. If we simply obey God, and trusted his promises rather than rely on our deals and our schemes. Just believe God at his word and moved in that direction. May God enable us to be a people of faith in this journey that he has called us to live in. And in the meantime, let's accept no deals from the world, whatever it might throw to entice us. No offer, no offer can possibly compare to the one that God gives us in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen.